Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We are here on uh, what is supposed to be uh, the first uh, first Monday, I guess, in Omaha. Um, we're, 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 we should be coming off of opening weekend in, in Omaha. Instead, uh, we are not. It is raining in Durham as Joe and I record this, but we still have plenty to discuss here on the podcast, the draft was last week, so we'll uh, we'll get into the draft and its implications uh, for college baseball. Uh, we also have a new top 25 this week that Joe and I had a lot of fun with. Uh, things were missing in Omaha. Uh, just kind of, you know, thinking about what makes that event special was uh, was a fun diversion for us. So we'll we'll get into that as well here on the podcast but before we get to all of that joe uh just how are uh, how are you doing here on this uh on this rainy june day with uh with no college world series action yeah wishing i was in omaha for a couple of reasons one is the obvious two is that it's a nice day in omaha today like uh you know low 90s day sunny i guess it's a little bit warm but not too bad and that's always the risk you take this time of year i i think i seem to remember last year the weather being pretty good and i wasn't there the whole time uh, but I was there the first week, and uh, it, was, it was pretty good, I felt like, you know, temperature-wise at least. But two years ago, my goodness, was it was it ever hot. And that's um, one of the things I think I remember on my first trip to Omaha was just that it was, you know, it, I think, I mean, it was, I think it was quite literally 100 degrees a couple of the days that, that uh, I was there back in 2018. So, hey, it's June. I mean, that's the risk you run. It, you know, you're going to have those types of types of warm weather days, but it looks like it's, it's pretty nice there. So wishing I was in Omaha for, for a couple of different reasons. And one of the reasons that the, the top 25 was kind of fun to put together and fun to think about this week is that I think so much of what, and look, I've only been the two years, but I think I can already speak confidently that, you know, so much of what I enjoy about going to the college world series has little or nothing at all to do with, the baseball part. And if it weren't for the baseball, the event wouldn't be happening. I, I get that. But there's just the little things in and around it, you know, ranging from just small touches like the backdrop. And I, we touched on that a couple of times in the top 25, just, you know, it's a nice place to watch a game and uh, right around to the fact that the entire city really revolves around the college world series for that couple of weeks. So there's, there's a lot of little things that go into it to make it such a pleasurable experience. And that's why we're, why we're missing it. Um, but it, it's fun to celebrate that. I mean, you and I have done a lot of uh, the last, last few weeks, particularly done a lot of lamenting what we're missing in college baseball, but I think it's just as important to celebrate it for what it is because we will get it back. And it's frustrating now that we're not doing that, but um, you know, this too will end as they say, and, and we'll be back to it at some point, uh, hopefully next year. And uh, we'll, we'll be able to celebrate it again in, in person. So it's a celebration as much as a, as a, as lamenting missing something in my mind. Absolutely, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll uh, we'll get back to to that as as soon as possible, and, and that it'll be uh, you know the, the great event that that we all remember. But uh, for now, this is this is what we got. So I would encourage you to uh, to check that out over at baseballamerica.com, where you can see also plenty plenty of of draft coverage. If you're still looking to uh, to wrap up last week's events uh, that have now spilled over into this week as the undrafted free agent signings have have begun. They began on Sunday when, when that period opened, and so that has continued to uh, to impact college baseball here, and will continue to do so 
you know, I would imagine for probably another week or so, free agents are allowed to sign, uh, you know, through uh, through July. But I would guess that for the most part, if you're if you're interested in signing, it's going to get wrapped up here relatively quickly, uh, because it, there's not going to be a whole lot of chance this summer to improve your your stock by by playing. Although there are some college summer leagues going, and uh, you know high school kids are are playing in in in, uh, in events in some parts of the country, so it's possible that that someone will pop up that way. But for the most part, I would think that if you intend to sign, it's going to happen relatively quickly. Yeah, I think that was something that I was actually wrong about. Like early in this process, when when you and I sat down to podcast about the news of the changes to the draft, and and I guess on. A different topic, but related topic of the roster crunch in college baseball. One of the things I think I was wrong about was, and who knows, like maybe we get to July, we're singing a different tune, but it looks as of right now, I think you're right that, you know, there will be some signings here and there over the course of the next several weeks. But I think for the most part, it'll wrap this week because I, I struggle to kind of think of the, the scenario under which a player would, would become so enticing to a team that wasn't before or a team would just be so desperate for a player that they feel like they need to sign that player, especially in a situation where they're not going to be in all likelihood, not going to be playing any minor league baseball. So you're going to, are you going to sign this guy just to have him sit around or what, you know, I just, I struggle to think of the scenario where some player just becomes so such a steal for a team. They feel like they have to have to snatch them up. And like I said, there probably will be a little bit of that, but with, without mo- most summer ball as we know it and um, with the crunch that there already is in, in minor league baseball and, um, you know, it's on some level that the teams just only have X number of roster spots available that they want to fill. And I think all that's going to contribute to it. There not being a ton of movement late in the game on this, which is a, an about face from what I thought when we went into it, which is, oh, can you imagine being a college coach and you know, you, you, you think you know what you have coming back and then you've got a player, a key player who signs with the team on July 15th or what have you. And I, you know, I don't know. I just, I think you're right. I don't, I don't see a ton of that happening. And at the time I thought we might, but, but now it's, it's harder and harder to imagine. I don't, I, I don't know that anything fundamentally changed except just my viewpoint on what seemed realistic. I think at the time it just, everyone was so worried about the coming chaos about college baseball rosters and the draft and all that. And it still has been chaotic, but I think so it was easy to get wrapped up in the max amount of chaos that happened. And I just don't think at least as far as the signings going late in the summer, that's going to be a reality. Yeah. I mean, the, the deadline is the end of July and, you know, so that means that there might be some uncertainty, but the thing about a five round draft is that, you know, this year there is, you know, more than ever, it is imperative that teams drafted players that they can sign in the top five rounds. That the 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 penalty for not signing a a pick if you only have five of them is much higher this time around. And you know, yes, they still get compensation um, for the first three rounds. I guess it is. And yes, a team could have punted on a pick, but I don't think we saw that happen. And so if you drafted a player, you, I would say this, you're very, very, very much intent to sign him and are sure that you can do it. Um, So that that's going to eliminate some of the, uh, the uncertainty. And then, yeah, with the, 
the the free agent signings, the just the limitation of twenty thousand dollars signing bonus on those players, and you know the understanding that minor league baseball is unlikely to exist this summer uh, is going to you know pretty well clear out what who is interested in signing, what teams want to get done, and then kind of eliminate a lot of the the desire to sign players later in the summer. I mean, if, you know, some of these uh, college summer leagues get going and a player really goes off there, you know, maybe things change. But I, I think, you know, even in those cases, you know, you see it off the Cape every once in a while. There are a couple every summer that sign that are undrafted, not talking about the kid that goes up there after he gets drafted to try and get a bigger bonus. But there are a few that get, that get signed off of the Cape every summer, but there are very few of them. And, you know, the, there, there are just as many guys that go up to the Cape, I would say that, you know, break out, have an opportunity to sign, but decide just to go back to school and try and get a better deal in the following draft. And I, I would think that that would probably be the prevailing uh, thought for a lot of players if they are able to play anywhere this summer and if they do have a breakout also because you know we don't know what kind of scouting uh, is going to get done this summer this week major league baseball cleared its scouts to resume scouting activities which they had not allowed um, you know since the start of uh, the, the shutdown in march they're only allowed three scouts at any one event but they are allowed back out otherwise uh, unrestricted. I'll be interested to see if any teams don't want to send their scouts out uh, before MLB told, you know, put the moratorium in place. There were some individual teams that were pulling scouts off the road. Uh, there's also obviously been a lot of, you know, uncertainty, job uncertainty for, for scouts out there, uh, you know, in terms of furloughs and, and the like. And you know, so I, I don't know how heavily any of these summer leagues are going to get scouted with the exception of the Cape. It's not like any of them are massive scouting events. The Northwoods League is at times, uh, but it's not from, you know, it, it's not like the Cape where you go to any single game in the Cape Cod League and there are multiple MLB scouts there. It's not like that in these other summer leagues that at, at your all-star game, scouts will show up or, you know, every once in a while, scouts will show up at, uh, at, at games, but it's, th- these leagues traditionally are not the most heavily scouted, the ones that are, are, are out there getting played right now. So I'll, I'll be interested to see just from that standpoint. But again, to, to the overall point here, uh, the non-drafted free agent signing period opened on Sunday and you saw a flurry of activity over the first couple of days. I don't think we're going to see that level of activity continue too much longer. Yeah, it was kind of interesting to see, you know, this, and this is the way social media works. It's, it's certainly exacerbated by the way social media works and the incentive structures there. But it was, it was funny to see kind of in real time, there's a early, I would say an early flurry of signings. I know Baseball America Slack was lit up at like, you know, 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Eastern, you know, with, with the early signings. And there was a little bit of a lull and then it came back strong, like in the afternoon and an evening, but it was interesting to see in real time the the fans on, on Twitter, you know, wondering why their team was just sitting on their hands over the first couple hours as if, 
you know, um, that meant nothing was happening, you know. Um, and, and of course, you know, you have to remember that there was, you know, kind of a dead period. Uh, I, I think that's what they were officially calling it, but a dead period of, of contact with non-drafted free agents between the the draft and the, and the signing period. And that's not to say that, you know, some seeds weren't sown up to that point because, you know, the, these, these teams are familiar with these players and their advisors and, and all that jazz. So, um, but it was kind of interesting to see that play out. I mean, and then you had a team like the Royals who hadn't done a ton uh, early in the day. And I actually got a, a Royals fan quote tweeted something I tweeted when I tweeted out the, the non-drafted free agent tracker that, you know, I thought the Royals would be in a good place to sign some of these sign some of these high impact non-drafted players, but so far nothing. And then, you know, the Royals after day one and not to get too deep in the weeds about, you know, these non-drafted signing classes, just because, you know, much like a draft class, we don't know what the impact is going to be. And also, you know, these were all the guys who weren't drafted by definition. So, you know, you try not to get overly excited about it, but you know, if you were forced to pick a, a team that did particularly well, at least in terms of productive guys that you and I are familiar with and that we've talked about, I mean, the Royals really probably had the best day. So it, it changed very quickly uh, throughout the course of the day as, as to how teams were viewed um, about about what they were doing. And, and I think that will, you know, only continue as, as time goes on because we just don't know what's happening in the background. And players are probably slow playing some of this. There are probably some players who are, are waiting to get just the right offer. There are probably some players who are still debating whether or not they want to go back to school. So this will continue to play out. But just in the span of about 24 hours, we really did get to see this drama play out uh, in, in real time, at least in terms of the signings rolling in. Well, let's get back to uh, or, or get to the the draft itself. Uh, if you're living under a rock, I guess. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, I assume that you know Spencer Torkelson was drafted number one, going uh, going to the Tigers from Arizona State. Uh, that was not a surprise that Torkelson, who had you know kind of been the leading player in the draft class for a year. Uh, Goes goes first overall to the Tigers. He's the fourth Arizona State player to be selected with the first overall pick. Uh, so he he joins uh, you know good company there, uh, going from Tempe to uh, to number one in the MLB draft. And then we uh, we continued on a pretty significant run of college players. It was expected to be a college heavy draft at the top. That's what it turned out to be, even though the order of some of these players behind Torkelson uh, got jumbled from what we expected. Heston Kerstad uh, going second and Max Meyer going third uh, probably are the leading examples of, you know, what the, the, the kind of unexpected uh, first round turned out to be. Uh, you then had Aza Lacey at four. Uh, he was expected to be the first pitcher drafted. And then Austin Martin, who is expected to follow Torkelson off the board at two, uh, winds up going fifth. But all in all, it was a it was a big, big college draft, uh, especially at the top end. There were still a good number of high school players taken in the first two rounds before it kind of settled into a, a very college heavy draft. And honestly, I think that kind of just border or um, it is uh, follows the pattern. Uh, of a normal draft, just kind of in condensed form that you see a fair number of high school players taken early so that they're signed. Uh, and then you move on to, to college players. And so in, in this draft, the overall numbers are overwhelmingly towards college baseball. Uh, 
but if you just look at the first two rounds, it, it, it's closer to uh, to what you would expect for a high school versus college breakdown, which uh, you know probably not wholly unexpected. There there are you know, these these teams want the good college or good high school players in, in their system, and they're willing to pay for that, and, and that remained true uh, even in this this strange five round draft. Um, so yeah, the the overall breakdown from a team by team MLB perspective, you can find uh, elsewhere on, on BaseballAmerica.com. We're, we'll, we're content to let the the draft and, and pro guys uh, take it from there. But you know, Joe, from from a college standpoint, uh, you know, from an individual or, or a, a pick standpoint, uh, did did anything in particular stand out to you? We'll we'll get to the team, which college teams came through this good or bad in a second, but just from a player or a, uh, you know pro team perspective, uh, in, in terms of what they did with the college players, did did anything stand out to you last week? Well, I mean, certainly, I think you have to look at what the Blue Jays were able to do and, and, you know, get Austin Martin at, at five. And considering that was a guy who they were very, um, it became clear it was Torkelson at one, but that was a legitimate debate for a long time leading up to the draft there. And, you know, had Austin Martin been the number one pick, there, I think there would have been a lot of people that would have understood that. But lo and behold, he, he falls to five, and they were able to supplement that. In the second round was C.J. Van Eyck from, from Florida State, a right-hander who, um, you know, another – proven college guy there so you know I think you really have to like what they were able to do there and even some of the surprises you mentioned with you know Kerstad and, and Meyer going up a little bit higher than than maybe was expected coming into the draft I mean those guys were guys that we expected to get um, you know expected to get taken in in the high end of the first round and they did the numbers were just a little bit different than than we expected I, I did like from from a college standpoint I think it spoke to we've talked a lot about how strong this college pitching class was, and that was certainly borne out, but I think you can also not just see it in the volume, but I think you can also see it in the names that are involved when you start to get toward the back end of the first round. I mean, Bryce Jarvis pitched his way into the spot with what he did in the spring. And so I'm not even necessarily talking about him, although I think he could be part of this conversation. I'm more talking about, you know, guys like Jared Schuster and Bobby Miller at the back end. Um, I, I suppose Cade Cavalli maybe fits into that a little bit too, just because they, you know there were some questions about whether he was really this kind of guy coming into the year. But but Schuster and Bobby Miller in particular were, you know, good stuff. Um, a little bit inconsistent. Miller more inconsistent than Jared Schuster certainly. Schuster's numbers, um, you know, ha- just frankly hadn't been very good from a production standpoint for Wake Forest leading up to this season. So. Um, but those guys are well thought of enough and did enough in the springtime and the, and the looks that they did get to play their way into being back into the first round type arms. And so when you take guys like that and you combine it with, okay, Cavalli is the guy we thought he could be. He proved that to us. So he's going to go where he goes. And Bryce Jarvis goes from being a nice arm to being, wow, one of the absolute best arms in this draft. So you take those guys who might've been a little less certain and Hey, let's throw Garrett Crochet in there to the, for a lot of the same reasons. So you throw those guys kind of in there with some of the more certain pitchers, Meyer and of course, Asa Lacey, Emerson Hancock. And that's how you end up Reed Detmers. That's how you end up with this really, really good pitching draft. Because I think there is another scenario where, and maybe the arms always get drafted. Maybe I'm overplaying that, but I think there is a scenario where, okay, the guys who got taken at the top, you know, 
Detmers and Hancock and Lacey Meyer, et cetera, they get taken. But then, you know, Schuster is, you know, doesn't make a jump in the spring, doesn't show people what they want to see there. So he's not a first round pick. Same thing with Bobby Miller. He's not a first round pick. Cavalli gets taken later in the first round or in the comp round. Um, I think that was a plausible scenario as well. Um, but those guys kind of all pitched their way into the first round. And, and so I say all that to say, like, I was impressed not just by having so many college pitchers taken in the top 10, because I think we kind of saw that coming, but the volume of guys we had, even at the back end, that were able to pitch their way into those spots with what they accomplished in college, particularly in 2020. Yeah, when you just look at just getting outside the first round into the but, – but still in the top 100 picks, you're looking at nearly 25 college pitchers getting drafted, and then you throw in the uh, – what is it? Eight, nine? I think it's nine college pitchers drafted in the first round proper. Um, you know, so – basically a third of the first round or the, a third of the, the top 100 picks uh, are, are college arms. I mean, that's uh, I, that, that definitely says a lot about the, the strength of the, the draft class. And I think I was kind of struck by what happened on day two in terms of those arms early on, because when the first round finished, there were a lot of draft eligible sophomore pitchers that, that were there. And I was wondering like, are they going to get taken? are those guys going to decide that they would prefer to go back to school? Like will teams be willing to pay? And some of that was just because baseball, you know, MLB typically splits the draft first two rounds on day one and then three through 10 and 11 through 40. Whereas this year it was only round one on day one and then two through five. And so you know, in the second round, I'm used to, like, I'm used to day one being finishing and the second round being over and kind of evaluating from there. And at this time, at the end of just, you know, having just had 37 picks go off the board in the, the first round in the comp round A and looking at all these draft eligible sophomores, it was like, it was a big question in my mind, like, okay, what are these guys going to do? And as it turned out, uh, guys like JT Ginn, Slade Jaconi, I guess Slade Jaconi was the night before. Uh, but Ginn, Cole Henry, Clint Beater, um, you know, they they all end up getting drafted in the second round. And then Cole Wilcox, uh, there's been a lot of chatter that he might want to go back to Georgia uh, and, you know, probably, you know, go be Georgia's ace and presumably be a first round pick the following year. Uh, but he ends up going at number 80 overall to to the Padres. We'll see what kind of deal, um, you know, they're looking to sign him to. And, you know, that could end up being a really nice pick for the Padres. Also pretty unfortunate for Georgia uh, that, you know, they'd spent at that point probably close to 24 hours thinking like, oh, maybe, maybe Cole Wilcox is going to come back. And like they're getting very close to a, a point in the draft where basically no one is going to be able to pay Cole Wilcox. And, and then the Padres pulled the trigger. And uh, so now Cole Wilcox uh, will presumably be headed into the, the San Diego uh, system. So that, that was, uh, it was interesting just to see how, how that group of draft eligible sophomores got handled. I was wondering if there were going to be any of the really big ones uh, that wound up just kind of getting lost in the shuffle and, and coming back to college. There were just so many college pitchers. Was it going to be possible to pay the ball? And 
for the most part, they all did uh, did go. I, I guess Seth Lon- well, uh, Seth Lonsway, there it is at Ohio State is probably your uh, your top college uh, arm as a draft eligible sophomore that, that is returning to school and. Uh, he would, I, I would guess, become a, an early favorite to be a first-round pick next year as, as one of the best pitchers in the draft class. He still, though, uh, kind of has to uh, – you know, there are some questions about his, his control and, and, and the like. And so if he can answer those questions, he could wind up being a, uh, a very high pick next year. And he is the, uh, the highest-ranked college player not to have uh not to have been drafted in, in this year's class so that that'll be interesting just to see how how that all plays out next year in terms of uh Seth Lonsway's draft status but the the college pitching was definitely one of the, the stories of this draft no doubt about it yeah with Wilcox too I think there's a little bit of the parlor game being played of just because of everything going on around um, around baseball and, and the way resources are being allocated and the direction that the minor leagues and the draft are going. I think there was maybe a little bit of thought that, well, they they take a flyer on Wilcox. Maybe they come in with a hard number knowing there's a, like a, maybe a a 50, 50 chance Wilcox signs knowing that, okay, well, we don't have to pay out that bonus money. It's a third round pick. So we'll get a, a, you know, we'll get compensated for that pick, et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, I was actually assigned to that Padres call, um, you know, that teams are doing Zoom calls with media after their their drafts. And I was on that Padres call after Cole Wilcox got taken. And you know, nobody's going to go into that room and say, like, no, we just took it because we thought we'd just take a flyer. I get that. But the Padres ha- have a, brought up a good point where they say we had Hudson Head last year who got $3 million as a third-round pick. So there is track record there for the Padres doing this. And they are very confident they're going to sign him. And because it's a team that has – pulled this trick off before makes me a lot more confident to the extent I had any doubt before, but makes me a lot more confident that it Wilcox is someone they're going to, um, they're going to bring in and end up signing when it's all said and done there. And, you know, Georgia, you know, got some news too with Tucker Bradley signing as a non-drafted free agent. So, you know, you and I debated Georgia when it comes to our off season top 25 we did. And it was, we, we ended up leaving them out for a lot of reasons. And, and certainly this, you know, having some other guy get maybe get popped unexpectedly would have made it tougher, but, but they certainly have not had it easy when they, you know, the guys they expected to get drafted got drafted and they had a non-drafted guy get, get taken. So certainly they have not, um, you know, it, it, it has not convinced us necessarily strongly in the other direction. They should be included in our, in our next update, but that's a discussion I suppose for, for another day. I'm curious uh, if I could throw something back at you here that um, cause you have much more extensive coverage uh, uh, history doing coverage of the draft, pardon me, and, and experience in that realm. Were you surprised at all? Because I guess I'm wondering if I should have been surprised or even if I am surprised, I'm still grappling with this a little bit, but I guess I kind of expected that we'd see a little bit less of the, what we would traditionally call a senior sign. And we did see some seniors, yes, and I don't just mean Landon Mack, who had kind of graduated from being a senior sign, but we did see some literal senior signs, but we also saw some underclassmen who, you know, were expected to be undersigns, shall we say. And I actually, maybe there was more of that than I thought there was going to be. I just thought maybe the scarcity of picks was going to create a scenario where teams were looking for more quality there necessarily. But I guess the flip side argument that maybe you'll make is, well, ultimately it's, a, it's the, they're working from a, 
a, a prorated pool of money. And, you know, it, there's always going to be scarcity in the money side of it. And if you want to sign these high-end guys to keep them going to college or from, to keep them from going back to college, you're going to have to throw extra money around. But I, I just kind of, in the moment at least, was a little bit surprised we had as much of that as we did in a five-round draft. Yeah, I, I think there was a lot of that. And it also wasn't a ton of seniors that were doing it. And the... It was something that I think initially people probably thought like, oh, well, they only have, you know, five picks, six picks, four picks, whatever it is. Uh, you know, they're not going to waste them. The trouble with that is that if you want to collect as many premium talents as possible, you have to play that game. You have to find a, a place to save money. And so you saw the Mets take three top 100 players um two i guess because they took in were they, they took in and picro armstrong uh who are both i believe top 30 if not top 40 players uh and then isaiah green a highly regarded high school player uh, who was also a top 100 player and so having done that they then have to find ways to save money later in the draft because they want to pay all of those guys and two of them are high school players with the maximum amount of leverage. And, and the third is a draft eligible sophomore. So you have to find ways to, to you know, make those bonuses fit in, in your pool. And the other thing that was, I didn't realize maybe myself, but talking to JJ at some point over the last couple of months helped me understand was that the difference in a normal year between, you know, a fifth round pick and signing even as, you know, like a, a, an 11th or 14th or whatever round pick where the first $125,000 of your bonus does not count against the, the slot system or, uh, you know, even you can, you can get up to 125 before teams really start caring, before it starts impacting them. Uh, and, and as the same is true for, for a non-drafted player, the difference between a, nor a, a fifth round and that is like $300,000, $400,000. The difference this year between being drafted and not being drafted was, you know, massive between your slot your, your, your pick value and the $20,000 max. So even if they draft you in that fifth round and agree to pay you $100,000, which is far below pick value or even 125, you know, what you would normally expect uh, uh, to be your max as a, as a non-drafted free agent in a normal year, that's still $100,000 more than you would get this year. So it become, it became very much like, it's from the signings that, that we're seeing trickle out early on, it, it has become clear that there were players that were willing just to get drafted so that they could avoid that $20,000 cap. And so that means maybe they only signed for $80,000, $80, even though they're a junior, you know, that it was still, they were ready to go out. They didn't want to risk injury next year. Uh, let's just get drafted get more than I would get as a, as a non-drafted free agent and, and just get this process started and, you know, understand that, you know, pick value says that I just took a significant haircut. Uh, so all in all, not surprised that happened. 
And it had to happen to have to, to sign the high school players that, that they wanted to sign because this is what has to happen in a normal year. Uh, so you just have to, because again, like, like you said, Joe, the, all of the, the pools were prorated. You have to just bring that, that whole same strategy along if you're going to, to, to follow that. Now, some teams, uh, you know, didn't need to, maybe they had an extra pick in, in a competitive balance round or, you know, the Tigers, just by virtue of picking first overall, uh, your bonus pool winds up being massive. Uh, and, and so it's not that big of a deal. Uh, and, and then you can just kind of pick talent throughout. Uh, but by and large, a lot of teams needed to, to do some of the juggling act that you normally see. And they had five fewer rounds to do that juggling act. And so they really had to, to make the most out of their, their fourth and fifth round picks this year, I would say. Yeah, what's interesting about that, just, um, I, I don't know how we would actually do this, like, and, and map it out. It'd just take a lot of time, I guess. But what's interesting about it, too, is that it really, in a five-round version of this, like a micro version of a normal draft, you really end up with what I presume is is a relatively normal distribution of who got taken, whereas I think you could have convinced me coming into the draft that, well, yeah, all the high school kids who really should get drafted are going to get drafted. The guys who are never going to come to school aren't going to come to school. The elite, elite college guys are going to get drafted. They're not coming back. But you could have convinced me that, yeah, all those, like, you know, the guys who are the maybe fringy, you know, not quite elite college guys, college draft guys who have leverage, who have, you know, at least a year to come back, like those guys aren't going to get taken at all. Like it's going to be all like high-end high school guys, high-end college guys, and then money savers or, or what have you. Like, but no, it actually ended up feeling like it was a pretty even distribution. I mean, you could have also, by the way, convinced me of like, well, because they have the non-drafted thing and that's going to be such a big deal, like no, no college players with very little leverage are going to get taken. They're just going to sort that out on the back end with the non-drafted free agent stuff. But like we've clearly have debunked why that, wasn't the case here, but you probably uh, someone very knowledgeable in the draft could have maybe talked me into that if they made a good argument about it. But like I said, I, I think what we ended up with though is you've got college seniors who got taken, not as many, but you know, as college seniors got taken, you had some obviously the elite of the elite got taken, but you had some fringy college guys who, like in a normal draft, would have gotten taken in the you know the the middle rounds where it was like, do they come back? Do they sign? It kind of depended on their personal their personal preference to it. We, we had some of that, you know, so really it strangely, it, even in this weird, super condensed five round format, it really kind of felt pretty, pretty normal, at least as far as the player distribution goes. And that's, that's certainly something I would not have expected, regardless of how I thought it was actually going to shake out. I would not have predicted what felt like a normal player distribution in terms of who got selected. Yeah, I, I think that that is a, a fair assessment of, of how it shook out. You know, looking at this more from a, a college team perspective now, I think that, you know, I, I did a list of, of winners and losers, which you can read over at baseballamerica.com, five teams that won, five teams that, that lost because of the draft. This does not include uh, non-drafted signings did it before, uh, before the signing period opened. But I, I came to the conclusion there, Joe, that no team had a better 
draft. No college team had a better draft. And I mean, you can make an argument that no team period had a better draft than Florida. The Gators were already our number one team in our never too early top 25 for 2021. They make it out of this draft without Tommy Mace or Jack Leftwich getting drafted. Both were ranked in the top 160 prospects. There were 160 players drafted. Neither of them gets drafted. Tommy Mace is the second highest ranked college player not to be drafted. So their one and two are back after we had presumed they both were gone and we still ranked them number one. Their recruiting class had risen to number three in my update of, of the recruiting class rankings earlier this month. They lose Zach Veen, the top high school player. They lose Kobe Mayo, who is also a top 100 prospect. They still, though, haul in nine BA 500 recruits. Um, and really no one else, uh, no other player got drafted uh, in terms of their current roster. Kirby McMullen, their senior third baseman who was having a breakout season this spring, had already said he intended to come back to, to college. You heard Austin Laneworthy on this podcast talk about how he was unsure what he wanted to do. He does not get drafted. He, to this point, uh, more than 24 hours into the signing period, has not signed as an undrafted free agent. I haven't seen anything official from Austin. I might have missed something. Uh, but, you know, at this point, Florida looks like they're running back the team that went 16-1, and started the season at 16-0, and and now is adding – one uh, another top five recruiting class and there's a very real chance that when i do the final update in september you know they're going to have a case to be the number one recruiting class in the country i don't know how it gets better than that joe yeah i don't i don't know that it can i mean i i don't know what's better than being ranked number one but florida has probably graduated to that whatever that is like they're ranked one with a star next to it or something. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like they, things really could not have gone reasonably better, you know? And I say reasonably because there was like no scenario where Zach Veen gets to campus. Like the, the best case scenario I could have talked myself into is like, yeah, Mason Leftwich just decided to come back. And, um, but I, you couldn't have even talked me into that. I thought there was a pretty good chance that Leftwich would be back for, for instance, but um, they get them both. And that's obviously outstanding news. And, um, you know, uh, Nick Delatore, who covers the, the Gators locally, you know, tweeted out like a depth chart of their pitching staff projected for next season. And, well, my goodness, like, I mean, there's just not going to be enough innings, like period, the end, you know, um, <laughs> for all the talented guys they have. And that's always the case at Florida and, and a number of other places that really do well on the pitching side. But even, even more, I mean, they've got not enough innings for the proven guys, not just the guys that, like, we, that they think are good. Um, just for the proven guys. So, um, yeah, they have, they have clearly um, set themselves up to be, you know, number one in our next update, the rankings, number one going into the season next year, um, and really to be the, the standalone favorite to win the national title. I mean, you look at the teams that are around them in, the, in our, our offseason top 25 we did, and, and Texas Tech really didn't do anything to, to gain or lose ground necessarily. I mean, they kind of had a draft as we expected it, but – 
um, you know, they're certainly not, not going to catch, uh, catch Florida, uh, you know, UCLA, uh, probably, you know, got, I mean, I think you had them, did you, did you had them among the losers, didn't you with UCLA? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they ended up getting a lot of their recruits drafted, which uh, a couple of them that maybe were a little bit more on the, on the borderline. So they get hurt there. So I just, even if you wanted to maybe try to make a devil's advocate case for someone else that was ranked in the top five to really give Florida a run for its money at number one, I don't, I don't know that you could do it. Like, I think that's how, how good of a, a week Florida had, uh, at least as, as far as the, as far as the draft goes, there were, there were certainly others, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to make of Miami, frankly, um, because they got some great news on the recruiting side of it where they yeah, had, Miami at one point was listed. I had them listed in the, the winners because, you know, Alex Terrell came back and they, basically held their recruiting class together, which was a top 10 class already, and now might finish as a top five class. They lost one recruit, Sammy Infante, who's a good player uh, for sure, but they kept their top recruits. But they also lost their top two, or their, their top two current prospects, uh, or prospects off their current team in Slade Ciccone and, and Chris McMahon. And while I didn't know this at the time in, in writing it, but Brian Van Bell, uh, has late, since signed as a, a free agent, meaning that they have to replace the entirety of the rotation. Yeah, so I just I I don't know what to do with that, and you know, Freddie Zamora being you know replacing the shortstop uh, yes. on top. Forgot of that. forgot Freddie Zamora, who of course didn't play this year, but also drafted and, and and presumably will sign. Yeah, so I just I really don't know exactly. I mean, it, it probably all adds up to Miami being the type of team next year that you know, beat some teams they're not supposed to beat and loses some games they're not supposed to lose just because they're a little bit young and like super duper talented, but the talent hasn't necessarily been fully formed yet. I think that's probably what they end up being. One of the other interesting teams to me is, is Georgia Tech. And it's not that they didn't lose some guys. Michael Goldberg gets drafted. Baron Radcliffe gets drafted. Um, But they didn't lose Luke Waddell or Brant Herter. And, you know, if you had told Georgia Tech, you're going to lose two of these four guys, um, you know, I think, you know, Waddell would have been an easy choice, I think, just because he is so – the floor on him is so high and he can play premium defensive positions and he doesn't give you the high-end potential that Baron Radcliffe does. But Baron Radcliffe is still a work in progress enough that, you know, he just might be the type of guy that needs to get the number of reps that you can get in pro ball to really be able to become a fully formed player. Like the college season just might not be the place for him to become a fully formed player. And, you know, we really hadn't fully seen what Michael Goldberg could do yet. I mean, he had some some shoulder injuries that had limited him to DH work, which was a bummer because a lot of his value was tied up in speed and defense. And we really didn't get to see that. So if you're telling me you, you can bring back Waddell, a team USA guy, who hits and gets on base and and plays a serviceable shortstop in addition to being able to play a good second and third base and brand Herter, whose potential is front into the rotation from the left side. Like that might be, if you're going to lose two of those four, that might've been the two to hold on to. And on top of it, they held on to their recruiting class, which included a a kid in Kevin Parada, who I think was an assumption to just be gone. So they did really well too. I, I, I like that group coming back. And, and, you know, another one is, is South Carolina. You and I have had offline conversations about, South Carolina being really interesting and I don't know what to expect with them much like Miami, but it's for a different reason than Miami. South Carolina doesn't have a ton going out the door necessarily, but what they do have is kind of a log jam of a bunch of 
more or less unproven players. And so it's kind of like the similar situation they had coming into last season, except now they're exponentially more talented. And so you like to imagine they're going to figure out what pieces go where, but we just kind of have to see it first. Yeah, I, uh, I'm really intrigued by what South Carolina has. They, you know, kept their recruiting class uh, pretty well together. Luke Little, who is the, the flamethrowing junior college transfer they were expecting, uh, gets drafted. And Carmen Blachinski, their ace, gets drafted. But otherwise, everything's coming back. They've lost a couple in, uh, in the free agent market, but nothing um, – you know, I don't think anything that South Carolina wasn't expecting uh, has happened in the free agent market. And the entirety of the recruiting class basically is coming in, again, with the exception of Luke Little. So that's uh, that's pretty significant that they would have a couple pretty full recruiting classes coming in. They, they pulled a similar trick last year. And, you know, kind of under the radar because South Carolina was 12 and a pretty quiet 12 and four this season and the season got canceled and we didn't get a chance to see SEC play and all the rest of it. But South Carolina had three players on their current team ranked in the top 200 of the BA 500. Lijinsky was obviously number one, but Thomas Farr and Brandon Jordan were both ranked up there as well. And they're both coming back. And so now South Carolina is one of three schools that returns multiple top 200 players, assuming that you know everyone signs that they got drafted. But they're in position to be one of just three schools. We've named the other one of the others. It's Florida. Joe, uh, do you offhandedly know who the third is, or do you want to take a stab at it? Um, trying to think. Um... I guess I don't have it. <laughs> I guess I should just go ahead and stop doing dead air and just say I don't have it because I don't. <laughs> well, it's Vanderbilt. And so, you know, uh, if, yes, you told, if I told you like, oh, you know, Florida and Vanderbilt have, you know, these great returning players, you'd be like, okay, cool. Got it. Uh, you know, reigning national champion and the team that was number one this season. Got it. Makes sense. And then I tell you, oh, but South Carolina is there too. Like I, to me, when I saw that, I, that was surprising. And, you know, if the, if the Gamecocks are able to get the most out of Farr and Jordan, who both have pretty significant upside, uh, you know, that's, that's big news for their pitching staff. And so, you know, I mean, Skylar Mead does a really good job with their, their pitching since he's come over his, his whole career as a pitching coach has been uh, very successful. And so if he's able to unlock those two next year and, you know, they continue developing some of their other guys and, and the recruiting class comes along, it's not hard to see South Carolina taking a big step forward. Uh, the bad news, of course, is that you know, they play in the same division as Florida and Vanderbilt. And, oh, by the way, Georgia isn't going, like, away totally, and neither is Tennessee. So what I'm saying is the SEC East is going to be loaded next year. And, you know, we've seen the balance of power maybe flip to the West a little bit over the last couple seasons. But I think you're starting to see the seeds of the, the SEC East, uh, you know, coming back uh, in, in that in that power struggle between the SEC divisions. Yeah, it, the East is going to be interesting, and this is part of that offline conversation we had about South Carolina. But 
there's still a lot of reason for optimism about Tennessee, especially just in general about the way they're going. But, you know, they did lose Crochet, which was expected. Alaric Soleri expected to a certain degree, but then Zach Daniels got popped by the Astros. They've also, um, you know, had a non-drafted free agent uh, in the last couple of days signed from the pitching staff. So they they have lost about the maximum you kind of reasonably expected them to lose. Now, I, I still like um, – what they have on the pitching staff. Like I think they've got a lot of mix and match options out there and it's not like crochet was, you know, had that Friday spot locked down. You know, he, there were, there were questions all the way through three innings this year. Right. And before that he had had trouble sticking in the rotation. There were still questions about like, what really is he? So it's not like, you know, Georgia losing Emerson Hancock where it's like, okay, well there goes your, your Friday guy. So I, I still like a lot of what Tennessee has, but I think that that is interesting that they they kind of had a, a, a maximum reasonable amount of attrition, and South Carolina had a minimum reason uh, or minimum amount of attrition, and th- those two teams kind of feel like they're occupying a similar space in the SEC pecking order right here. And when you're talking about the SEC, where you know somebody's going to go 12 and 18, and somebody's going to go 13 and 17. And if that 13 and 17, and that's where the breaking point is, that might be the difference between somebody getting into a regional and somebody sitting at home in June. And it may not come down to those two teams, but those two teams are kind of circling each other right there. And so it's, it's really early to try to get into that type of conjecture, but it's those little small differences that end up making the difference in, in a league like the SEC where that, that one game difference in conference standings ends up having such an outsized importance when it comes to postseason resume and things like that. Absolutely. And, and that's, uh, that's definitely going to be something to watch here uh, going into 2021 is just how, how the SEC East stacks up behind Florida and Vanderbilt, uh, who we can uh, presume to be one and two in that division in, in the projected standings next year. Uh, let's get to a couple teams that didn't have such a great uh, great week last week. And Joe, let's start with your Oklahoma Sooners. And I say your because Joe was was way in front of Oklahoma being as good as they were this year. And it was – you could dream on them being good in 2021 if things broke right this week. And I would say things did not break right for them this week to to kind of pick up where they left off uh, in 2021. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even really started to have the conversation about what we do with our updated rankings. We'll, you know, work on that here in the coming days. But, you know, it's, you know, Oklahoma might be a team we talk about. Are they even a part of the next rankings? Just because you lose all three members of the rotation, I think, I was pretty certain they'd lose two or three, but I wasn't, I thought, I don't know if it was Prater or Acker, but I I thought, you know, there's a pretty decent chance. I think one of one or two of those guys, one or two of those guys ends up coming one of those two guys ends up coming back. And I think I've read somewhere since then that, you know, you know, Prater actually, you know, was, I guess in some circles considered more likely to come back to Norman and maybe um, was, was eyeing that, but ended up getting drafted in a spot where he was comfortable with, with signing and moving on. And I guess we'll, we'll have to, see and, and confirm that as, as time goes on, but it looks like all three of those guys are, are going to sign. And on, on top of that, you, you end up losing, losing the guys in the recruiting class that you expected to lose. And I don't just mean Ed Howard, but they, they had lost a couple guys there and, you know, they ended up having Brady Lindsley get drafted, which I think was, you know, he was just one of those senior signs. It ends up, you know, getting drafted that you can't necessarily predict who it is, who it's going to be, but he ends up, 
up getting getting taken. That's a, a key piece as well. So they really ended up losing even more than, than you could have imagined there. So that's that's going to be tough. And especially to say nothing of the fact that their recruiting class was a top ten recruiting class and lost its top two players. It was a top heavy class, and and it's now down its its top players. It, it's still a good class, but I don't think it's a top ten class anymore. Yeah. So I think you know I think it's going to be a retooling team next year. Uh, with the Sooners and that doesn't mean they can't you know compete to be in a regional it doesn't mean they can't do a lot of things but I mean it certainly was a team that if things really broke right for them it could have been a team to compete at the top of the Big 12 and that was looking like what they were going to be during the 2020 season and we, we never got to see them live up to that or or not so um, yeah tough a tough week for the Sooners and, and you know that's just in the Big 12 right now too you've got you know, I, I was struck by when I was writing my Big 12 stock watch a few weeks ago that, you know, there, there's there's a lot of reason for optimism around the Big 12 about teams getting better. And there's been a lot of kind of group improvement in the Big 12 of late. Um, and so there's just not a lot of room to have rebuilding years. And if you have a rebuilding year in the Big 12, it's real easy to kind of fall behind the eight ball. And I'm not saying or guaranteeing that's going to happen with Oklahoma next year, but, but certainly there, it's going to be an uphill climb for them to competed at a super high level in the big 12, just because the rest of the conference is either a kind of cresting going into 2021 or brings in a big time recruiting class like Texas, although they had their own issues with getting the class gutted a little bit or like TCU, where it seems like everything is just kind of coming together for that group Um, with everyone else in the conference being falling into one or more of those categories. It creates a scenario where it's going to be tough to be a rebuilding program in that league in 2021. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And, you know, I also, you know, they, they still have a lot of good things about that team, but you look across the state at Oklahoma State and, you know, they are ha, have locked down a lot of their returners uh, who weren't drafted. You know, they've, they've said they aren't going to, to sign. And, you know, I'm not surprised about any of that if you have the chance to play an Obrey next year. Um, but you know, that this year looked like the year that Oklahoma might be able to flip Bedlam. And now it, it would certainly look like Oklahoma state might have the upper hand again. And we've talked about how tough this, this shutdown was for Arizona state and Miami and to an extent, Georgia, these teams had all been really building to 2021 and for Miami and ASU, it was really a, a chance to, you know, re-announce themselves on on a more national stage and, and for Georgia, it was a chance to break through after hosting a couple home regionals and, and not being able to make it to a super uh, Oklahoma definitely is a part of that as well. Uh, they just didn't quite get the buzz that those other schools got for a variety of reasons, but this is now shaping up to be a potential pretty significant missed opportunity for the Sooners, which I mean, it's just really unfortunate that this is the way it shakes out that you know you can put together a pitching staff like Cavalli, Prater, and Acker. That's the only they're the only team in the country that had their rotation drafted completely. Uh and, and they're now, you know, without those guys moving forward. So it's uh it's unfortunate for Oklahoma. Uh and, and you know we'll we'll see how they you know they recruit well, they'll get out of it, but it it, it does just feel like a, a really unfortunate missed opportunity for the Sooners. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's no reason to jump ship on on the program just in general. 
because it says something about it that they were able to get to the point they got in 2020. But it but it does mean that there is going to be a little bit of a step back, most likely, and it will be a little bit of a, a building process there as opposed to what they were poised to do, which is maybe if they got another year with most of their guys back in 21, brought in that, you know, most of that full recruiting class ahead of the 21 season and then could have had a little more of a little less of a transition there, but it doesn't look like they're going to be afforded that. And that's, that's the way it goes in college baseball, even in year normal years, you have that happen where your timing just doesn't quite line up and you have these kind of gap years. And it looks like that might be the case for, for, um, for Oklahoma, but uh, just in general, brighter days ahead, you know, for that program that, you know, certainly was head in the right direction and just circumstances derailed them uh, in an unfortunate way. All right, so you can uh, check out the rest of the winners and losers over at baseballamerica.com. We'll have more commentary on this uh, over the next few weeks. Joe and I haven't decided exactly when the updated top 25, 2021 top 25 will will be published, but look for that within the next couple of weeks and we'll uh, be breaking this down further uh, once we do and you know we can see a little more clearly which teams uh, you know, make big moves because of uh, the, the draft results. So we'll, we'll have more on that uh, to come. Did want to touch on this week's top 25. Again, it's 25 things we uh, were missing about Omaha. Number one is, uh, is just the watching the best players excelling and, and just playing on baseball's college baseball's biggest stage. I mean, that that's the whole thing that's the whole thing. You know, uh, when, when you go out to Omaha, it's, it's watching college baseball's best uh, on the biggest stage and, and seeing, you know, them compete for that national championship. And, and so that, that was a clear, clear cut one for, for me. Uh, but you know, the, the event is much more than that. And so we run from, from that all the way down to number 25, which is the dog pile at, at the end. Uh, so it, you know, in between, though, you got the Omaha Baseball Village. You have trips to local restaurants like the Drover. You you have you know just kind of the the reunion. You know, uh, a lot of people uh, are are seeing you know fellow fans or, or catching up with uh, you know old friends. You know, at in in Omaha for for Joe and me, it means seeing a lot of uh, our colleagues in the media or you know, some old coaches who always come to the, the World Series, thinking about a guy like Gene Stevenson, you know, you know, you're going to see him in Omaha every year. And, uh, you know, so that just the, the reunion uh, atmosphere of, of, of Omaha is really cool. And the tailgate lots and, and all the rest of it. I mean, it's, uh, it's just such a, such a fun atmosphere for, for the whole two weeks, kind of a festival kind of, kind of deal for college baseball. And uh, there are just so many different components of that. Uh, Joe, from the ones that that we listed off there uh, in in the 25, uh, were there any that, you know, really struck a chord with you as, as you were, you were thinking about them and and, and writing about them this weekend? Yeah. I mean, where to even begin? Like that was kind of the, the hard part for me was, was kind of picking out the ones that stand out to me. I think the, the big one though for me is, and I think because this is something I couldn't really fully understand until I, until I went to the college world series for the first time, you kind of notice on TV that the atmosphere, frankly, like as the college world series 
goes on, it lags a little bit. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Teams start losing, so their fans start to go home. Um, you know, during the week, the, the locals don't come out as much, especially for the day games, because it's the week and they've got work and, and what have you. Also, later in the week, you can't bet on your team being there necessarily. So if you're going to show up, you have to be able to do that, kind of drop everything and go, so on and so forth. So I think the one that stands out to me is these huge opening weekend crowds, because there's really nothing like those first two days where, you know, you pull up to go park and there's just wall-to-wall people um, on the sidewalk and in the tailgating lots. And uh, you can just feel the, the, the energy and there are thousands upon thousands more people who are never going to make it into the stadium because they're just hanging around the baseball village or they're in the tailgating lots or, or, or whatever. But then you get in the stadium and, you know, you and I and the rest of the media can get in there a little bit before the fans start filing in if we, if we so choose. And so you'll get in there and you're, you're sitting there and then you, you can tell when the people start to come in because you can see them milling about, but it's one of those deals where, you look and you start paying attention and then you, you get distracted by something, but then you look up like 30 minutes later and you're like, my goodness, where did all these people come from? <laughs> because the, the stands have filled in and, you know, it, for a really good game, like I, I think it was the Texas Arkansas two years ago was an opening weekend game, I believe. It was. Yes. yes. And I remember looking up one time, I had kind of gotten distracted by something, something I was working on or, conversation with somebody or I was getting food I, I don't know it could be any of those things and I looked up and was like oh my goodness there are a ton of people here and there were still like 45 minutes to go until the game started it was unbelievable and so that was something I could not I kind of intuited that that early on the crowds are better but I did not know the extent to which that was true until I got to go and see that firsthand so I'm really missing these last couple of days being there with those big crowds that bring a ton of energy and not even a ton of energy in a, in a partisan way. Like you've got, although for Texas and Arkansas, you did very much have two very distinct rooting groups. I don't even necessarily mean it in that way. All that can add to it. It's just even the neutral fans, just the energy. It's a, it's a celebration of college baseball. It's a celebration of baseball in general, celebration of summertime. And um, so many people make this a pilgrimage. They come every year. And so it's just a different energy in the ballpark those first couple of days. So I think that's what I've, what I've missed the most. Um, and quickly on Gene Stevenson, by the way, he, um, I had to give him credit that you see a lot of coaches around the college world series. Some you see in the press box, some you see milling about, um, you know, some you might see like in some of the, the suites or even down in the stands, you'll see that sometimes. And usually they're kind of in the middle of a conversation, shaking hands and, and some, I noticed they get pulled into some of that, you know, but you know, Gene Stevenson will do some of that talking in the press box, but he's mostly there to watch the games. Like he'll sit there and just watch the baseball games for most of the day. And like, I just remember being struck by that, that there's this legendary college baseball coach there who's made this trip to Omaha, albeit not at that stadium, but made the trip to Omaha a number of times to Wichita State. And he's just there mostly to watch the baseball. Like he'll do some chatting with people and he's very kind when people come up and recognize him and talk to him and, and all that. But he does some of that stuff, but for the most part, he's just there to watch the games. And I just, there's something about that that I just found so, so pleasing, honestly. He is one of a kind in, in so many ways. And um, it's, uh, you know, he's going to be there and yeah, he is, he is locked in uh, on the games, which uh, is, is, 
fun to see just how much he he still loves college baseball after you know so long in the game and and now several years uh on the outside as well in in his retirement i uh you know, it's been remarked on on twitter uh i i've seen that you know people are surprised that i would rank the drovers so high i'm not you know i'm by far among college baseball media types the the low man on the drover which is kind of like the iconic college world series steakhouse and you know it's a steakhouse guys but you know i i also do understand what it means for people and so that that's why it's ranked so high but i mean i could have put so many other could have you know bargained with joe to get so many other restaurants on there you know that we we kind of shot for a, a, a bit of a overall overarching thing with the omaha hospitality and that i mean taken a little more narrowly is just how the the locals embrace the event embrace people kind of overtaking their city for a couple of weeks and, and that's all really cool to see but it, it also is just that omaha has like these little nooks and crannies these little neighborhoods that are are really fun when you get to know them and if you if you have the opportunity to explore beyond you know the downtown area beyond the the, the area with the stadium and, and old market district you know omaha is a is an intriguing little city i shouldn't say little it's an intriguing city and you know there there are just these little pockets of, of places around the city that you know have cool restaurants or you know bars or or whatever and if if you're able to get out and experience that you know i find that to be a lot of fun i mean it's also just fun to go into old market um where you know a lot of it's close to where a lot of people stay it's not that far from the, the stadium and it has a lot of great restaurants as well uh shouts to lava vet but it, you know, it, just being able to to be a part of that and, and and see people out away from the stadium if you're out after a game or out at lunch before a game, just just to see not only the the fans that are clearly there for the College World Series, like it's cool to see them embracing the the experience, but it's also just fun to see the locals, um, you know, still you know, going about their business and, and being very uh, generous with their, their time and, uh, you know, helping people find their way around and give, give advice and, and, and all the rest of that. It, that, that part of it is, is maybe one of my uh, more favorite parts of, of, of the event away from the baseball. Yeah, I'm with you there. It, it's, it's trite to say that the, and I've written it several times, so I'm as guilty as anybody, but it is a little bit trite to say that the, the city really kind of wraps its arms around the event, but it really does. It, it is the showcase event of the summer in the city, in a city, by the way, that does a lot of this kind of stuff. I mean, this year alone, there's been a lot of stories written. I wrote one uh, right when the shutdown first happened about this was a particularly bad year for this to happen to Omaha because they had NCAA tournament basketball games, men's and women's, I believe. I could be wrong about that, but they one or one or the other they also had the the u.s swim trials um in addition to the college world series and that's you know all those things though kind of pale in comparison to the college world series i mean it is the the 
uh, Omaha event to end all Omaha events. And a big part well, of that. Berkshire it, Hathaway. Well, sure. Yes. I guess. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. The Oracle of Omaha stands on it. A pedestal all his own there. But, um, but yes, uh, as far as sporting events goes, uh, the, the, the college world series is it in that city. And you do see it in the way you can be really not even anywhere close to the stadium. And you'll just drive by businesses that say, welcome CWS fans in the windows. And that's a small thing, you know, it's, and, and it's, it's entirely likely that those just get, you know, sent out by CWS of Omaha or some local, you know, business group. And the, the owners just like hang it in the window just because it's something to hang in the window, but it, it speaks to, the, the level to which the, the local business understands how big of a part of the city of the college world series is. And it, it's a conversation topic. I, my first year covering the city, I actually both years, cause last year too, I, you know, I stayed in a, um, in an Airbnb there and it was a, before they even knew uh, what I did, why I was there or what I was doing for a living. They, they asked me, so are you, uh, are you here for the baseball? And, I was like, yeah, and, and like it just was a conversation topic. And people, even who have no interest in baseball, just generally in Omaha, like it's a conversation topic, and you know enough to get by in the conversations about the College World Series because it's just that much of a topic around Omaha at that time. And I think that's really cool. And you know, would it be nice to occasionally be able to do this in a city, in a different city, you know, just for the variety's sake? Like, absolutely sure. But in a bigger city or a city where they've got a lot more stuff going on at any given time, it wouldn't get the love and affection that it gets being in Omaha year after year. And so while the variety would be nice from time to time, I think what we'd lose would be greater than what we gain from moving it around, in my opinion. Yeah, I have at times been very envious of, you know, basketball or, or football writers that – you know, get a new experience every year because, you know, from the outside, it looks really cool that, you know, one year the final four can be in San Antonio and the next year it'll be in Indy and then it's in New Orleans or Atlanta or wherever it is. Uh, and, and just how, how cool that must be to, to see how different cities uh, you know, what they do to put it on, what, what, what local flavor they bring to it. But yeah, what you lose in that is, you know, the local involvement that the college world series gets and, you know, just the, the familiarity of, of the event that, you know, everyone going there knows knows what they're in for and you know has this very specific experience in mind that they're chasing when when they go there and and you know there's definitely something to be said for that as well uh especially i think for for the players uh, and for the fans um you know while selfishly i might enjoy the idea of of moving around and, and seeing different things and and that part of it, you know, from a, a player and fan perspective, knowing that the city is going to absolutely embrace the event year after year, uh, it, that, that really brings something uh, unique to, to the proceedings, I think. I mean, if we were talking about putting this thing in San Antonio, like, sign me up. 
I love San Antonio. <laughs> I, uh, no, so if we're, go, if go on the Riverwalk. If that's where we're going, and now we're talking. Yeah, I mean, the Riverwalk is the Riverwalk gets a little bit of a bum rap, and maybe maybe I'm just kind of more in tune to this because I grew up in Houston, and so me and my family would go to San Antonio like probably on average once a year because it was just like two and a half, three hours down the road, and we could do it for a weekend and come home, what have you. Um, but Riverwalk sometimes gets a bum rap and it is a little bit, there are certain things on the Riverwalk that are a little tourist trappy. Um, so you just kind of have to know. However, it is a cool feature that in the middle of this city, which is a growing city and a vibrant city, they have this walkable river, uh, that, you know, goes right through and it's got some neat architecture and, you know, not far from the Riverwalk are some, some more local places that, um, they kind of give you the color of, of San Antonio as a, as a city. So the Riverwalk gets a little bit of a bum rap and I understand why, but I think that is to lose what is kind of neat about it, which is that like, Oh yeah, here's this river that just kind of flows right through the middle of this, this big city. And while yes, there are some tourist trap restaurants here, like that doesn't mean it isn't cool that they have this and there's no value in it. So yeah, if, if we're talking moving to the College World Series to San Antonio, then, then you've got me on board. We could do a one year thing there and then go back to Omaha. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> we'll uh we'll see where that goes um the uh we'll, we'll, we'll run that up the uh the flagpole in indy and and, and see how they take it <laughs> my guess is they're gonna they're gonna keep it in omaha there uh, unfortunately joe yeah that's okay that's all right well uh we'll be back we'll be back in omaha soon enough and uh you know it'll I, I think next year it'll feel all the more special you know even for people that have been there year after year after year uh you know to have gotten this this year where we're deprived of it is is going to make it more special for a lot of people and so i'm excited to see uh how how everyone reacts uh next year when when uh when the college world series returns that's going to do it for us today uh, here on the podcast. We, uh, we covered a lot of ground there, gave you a pretty meaty episode, I feel like. We're, uh, we're continuing to do that twice a week throughout the, uh, the offseason, or at least right now in the offseason. We'll, we'll see where, where our plans lie uh, going forward. But we, uh, you know, we really appreciate everyone who's subscribed to the Baseball America podcast, which you can do on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts, uh, click that subscribe button. Uh, we really appreciate hearing from you there or, or in a rating or a review. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Uh, we, uh, we're, we're continuing our, our draft analysis over at baseballamerica.com and in the magazine. If you're a subscriber, uh, but we also have plenty of more stuff coming this week on the website from a college perspective. Uh, Joe's Stockwatch uh, series of, of uh, all the conferences continues. We have one more coaching confidential uh, to, to do this week, and uh, we'll, we'll have some more stuff over there on the website for everyone. So I would encourage you to check that out uh, throughout the week. Joe and I will be back here on, on the podcast, I believe on Friday, to talk about uh, another classic game. We, we have another couple more of those to do uh, as we uh, round out what should have been the college baseball season with these classic games. Uh, so look for that later this week. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Joe for joining me. I've been Teddy Cahill. 
We'll see you next time on the Baseball America College Podcast.